Well, good morning, everyone. You enjoy, enjoying this rainy season we're in? It won't last long. <laughs> well, this morning, as you can see from the slide, I have titled The Return of the Brothers, but then with a slash mark, Catch and Release, kind of reminds me of Washington State. You can't fish up there unless you catch and release. And that's what our story is kind of about this morning. You know, as I was preparing the, the lesson for this morning, I came across several articles. One of them was talking about how Americans cherish their individual right to challenge authority. <laughs> they simply said, well, you know what? If you don't like a leader, what do we do? We simply vote them out of office. The American spirit can be summed up Actually, and you go back to the creation of America and the revolutionary flag. You remember what was on that flag? A snake. And it had a motto on it. Don't tread on me. With the mindset then of nobody's going to push me around. But as of Christians in America, we need to be careful. Careful with that. That we don't have that same kind of, mad, of attitude with our relationship with God. And it's really pictured in a cartoon that I saw called Frank and Ernest. Have any of you ever seen that cartoon, Frank and Ernest? Okay. The cartoon, these two bunglers, uh, <laughs> they were on their way to heaven, and they're looking at the pearly gates. And Peter's looking down at them, and he's got a frown on his face <laughs> because Ernie is wearing a T-shirt that says, Question Authority. Frank whispers to Ernie, if I were you, I'd change your shirt. Well, if God's word said something that we don't like, what, what do we see happening in America today? For many, the attitude is, I don't have to obey that. How about if they, if they teach something that we don't like? Never mind that that's what the Bible says. They just say, well, I'm, I'm just going to find another church that's more in line with my taste. If this church doesn't do what I want, I'm simply going to take my money to a different church. Well, this morning I want us to really examine ourselves, look at ourselves inwardly. What is your attitude as we study the life of Joseph? There's a story also of a pastor. He just kept boring his congregation with sermon after sermon after sermon on repentance. Finally, the people could stand it no longer, and they went to the elders, and they said to them, you have to talk to the pastor, get him to preach on something else besides repentance. And so they went to him and talked to him, and he couldn't decide on anything to preach about, so they chose for him. And the one they chose was, we want you to teach on pills. And he said, okay. And they were confident that he could never, ever make a connection between pills and repentance. But the next Sunday, the minister began by saying, there are big pills, and there are little pills, and there are bitter pills, and there are sweet pills, and there are cheap pills, and there are expensive pills, but there's one last pill, and that's the gospel. And that's going to be my message this morning, the subject on repentance. And you may be wondering, what in the world does all that have to do with the story of Joseph and his brothers? Well, as we've seen, Joseph's actions, his attitude, 
in dealing with his brothers, when you look at it and stand back, it parallels God's dealing with us in our bringing us to repentance and how he does that. And when his brothers stood before Joseph, seeking to buy grain, and they didn't recognize Joseph, immediately Joseph could have said, hey, you're my brothers, you're forgiven, and everything is just wonderful now. But everything would not have been wonderful, would it? Why? It's because these brothers, they needed to repent. They needed to repent of their terrible sin of selling Joseph into slavery before they could be restored. And so Joseph is putting them through a series of tests. He doesn't call it repentance, but he's testing their attitude. Have they changed? And it culminates then in the incident this morning that we're going to look at of Benjamin stealing Joseph's silver cup in chapter 44. Now back in chapter 43, remember, Jacob had finally let Benjamin go. But what did God use to change his heart? Do you remember? What was happening in the land of Egypt? Famine. Famine. Jacob had held on. He didn't want to let go of Benjamin. He held on and he held on and he held on until he was forced to make a radical decision. He could either hold on to Benjamin and risk the entire family in starvation. Or he could just let Benjamin go and trust in God. And he finally chose to trust in God and let Benjamin go. Jacob tells them that as they're going then, you take along some gifts along with the money that had been returned previously. He's probably thinking, hmm, this money and these gifts are going to find favor with the governor of Egypt. And maybe he's going to let Simeon go and maybe he'll return, everybody will return home and we'll be all happy. Well, we're seeing there's a lot going on here in chapters 43 to 45, in 40, all those chapters, as God is using extraordinary difficulties and circumstances to accomplish His work in their lives. Joseph needed to forgive his brothers. His brothers needed to confess to Jacob and be forgiven. Their father needed to forgive, forget, and stop showing favoritism. Because once again, who had taken the place of Joseph? Benjamin had taken the place of Joseph. And it should remind us here this morning, maybe we need to examine our own lives. Is there something in our lives we need to change? And so to be what the Lord desires, and we need to remember that God is a sovereign God, and He uses many ways of getting our attention to melt our hearts just as we've seen him doing in this family. We've seen then godly changes in their lives as this plays out. Tom has taught us previously that the human heart is what? Remember? What is our human heart like? Wicked. It's an idol factory, he calls it. Our heart is an idol factory. Sometimes God will use then hardships, sorrow, physical emotional suffering to bring us to repentance as we've seen now in the life of Joseph and Joseph now is about to test his brothers once more remember when they had arrived they were presented to Joseph with Benjamin 
And Joseph told his servants to prepare a dinner for with himself. Remember that? Jeff taught on that. And yet they still didn't recognize Joseph, did they? And they were afraid. They were afraid. And they were trying to determine if this was a scheme to seize them and make them slaves. And so before going on, they, they reiterated once more to the steward of this, that why they were there, how they had brought the money and back in that they had found in their sacks. They have returned it. And here is now where we see the kindness of Joseph beginning to show up. As he has his steward tell them, do not be afraid. The steward, who it appears, may have come to believe in the God of Joseph, or at least, at the very least, he knows of Joseph's God. Listen to what he says, and he tells them, it was their God and the God of their father that had orchestrated to put the treasure back in their sacks. And, he brought, he brought, and then he brings out to them Simeon, their brother. And then we saw how Joseph is giving them all kinds of clues, as Jeff taught us last week, of who he is. He, one we saw was the, how he sit them at the table according to their age. You remember that? And upon seeing Benjamin, what does Joseph do? He's, become, he's overcome and he goes back in his chamber and he cries, he weeps. And when he's done and cleans himself up, he comes back and they have this banquet. But Benjamin has served five times more than the rest of the brothers. Another test here, another test of their attitude to see how they're going to respond to Benjamin receiving favoritism over themselves. But we see there's no animosity here, at least we know of. No envy shown. And it brings us this morning then to chapter 44, as we're going to see now how Joseph, he's still not convinced, he's still not done testing them. Before we begin, let's open in a word of prayer also. Father, we do come to you this morning as our Father, only by your grace. Thank you for saving us, for having us repent of our sins and, and trusting in you for salvation. Lord, may you open our eyes, our ears, our minds this morning as we look into the life of Joseph further, and may it impact upon us any changes we need to make in our lives. We ask it not for our sakes, but for your, your will be done in our lives to bring you glory and praise and honor. So we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you open your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 44, and let's begin to read then verses 1 through 3 which begins with the setup. Verse 44, chapter 1, or chapter 44, verse 1, he says, Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry. Put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. So we see now the steward's instructions. In verses 1 through 3, Joseph has ordered his steward to fill their sacks with as much food as they can carry. But along with that comes the money. But there's a caveat here. In Benjamin's sack, you put the silver cup in his sack along with his money. And, and the steward did what he was told. The, you would have thought he would ask why. But he didn't. There's no questions asked of why he's doing this. Early in the morning then, they're headed back home. It seems they probably have had a great time here. They've had their brother Simeon back. 
Benjamin's with them now. They have their grain, and they are happy. Until, in verses 4 through 6, the scheme begins to unfold. Verse 4 says, They had just gone out of the city and were not far off. When Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow them in. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So he overtook them, and he spoke these words to them. And so we see then after planting this cup, and they have left in the morning, Joseph tells his steward, you catch up with them, and you accuse them of stealing this cup. And Joseph tells his steward, you ask them why they have repaid evil for good. Joseph's steward did exactly as he was told after catching up with them. In verse 5 and 6, the steward said also, he was to say to them, this is one of my master's drinks from which he uses for divination. You have done wrong in doing this. In verse 6, the steward again after catching them does exactly as been told by Joseph, speaking what Joseph had instructed him. And he's saying to them, actually what he's saying is, do you think you could deceive my master? Did you not know that he could divine and, and he would discover secret things and this cup was prized by him? Do you think that he would not use his power to recover it? See, this silver cup is described as Joseph's cup, but also in verse 5 is the one from which Joseph drinks and practices divination. Divination, what is it? Well, it's the practice of using materials such as liquids and bones and dice and cards and animal organs. They use these things to supernaturally seek out information. In fact, John Calvin says it. He says, the Egyptians were so accustomed to the illusions of the magicians, this ancient air so prevailed that they believed Joseph to be one of them. And, they do, and I do not doubt, Calvin says, that this rumor was spread among all the people. Although contrary to his, that contrary to Joseph's desire and intention, now Joseph, in feigning himself to be a stranger to his brethren, he combines this falsehood into one and takes advantage of prevailing vulgar opinion that he used auguaries. An auguary is just a means or a source to determine the outcome of the future. And so we see Joseph is using this like a mask to continue to make his brothers recognized him as an Egyptian. Remember Jacob's sons? They would have at least been aware of the practice and known what divination was because divination in the Egyptian court would have been very common and a reference to it would have seemed natural to them. It's not saying here that Joseph practiced divination. Instead, the original word can be uh, rendered as for which he would seek thoroughly to discover. We know from previous times that when Joseph interpreted dreams, did he use anything like that? No, he consulted God, and he gave God the credit, not himself. So this cup was probably just a drinking vessel of Joseph's. Was it valuable? Maybe. 
But Ken Hughes says he believes, once again, that Joseph is trying to make them think about the fact and remember that his brothers had sold him into slavery for what? 20 pieces of silver back in chapter 37, verse 28. And so he's using it once again to test them to see, have they really changed? Let's continue then as it looks as if everything's going great. They have had a fine dinner. They received their grain. They've had their brother Benjamin with them and Simeon, and they're headed back home, happy as a lark. What a party they have to tell Jacob when they get back home. But as we continue to look behind the scenes, as Joseph orchestrated this surprise for them, once again, he gave instructions to his steward in verses 4 through 6. And can you imagine how these brothers must have been thinking, what they must have been thinking? This is like deja vu all over again. And the steward asked them, why have you done this? Why have you done wrong in doing this? You have done wrong. What's the steward implying here is that what you've done is evil. It's very evil. You have acted wickedly, and you are unthankful, and you are foolish in doing such a thing. Notice here that the steward does not mention the money. The money is a mute thing. What's important is that they are being accused, another test coming up here, they are being accused of taking something that personally belonged to Joseph. It was a reminder for them of what they had done once before when they took Joseph from Jacob, who was his favorite son. Next, in verses 7 to 9, then, we see how they supplicate by making a humble entreaty for themselves. In verses 7 to 9, let's read it. They said to him, they're speaking to the steward, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from our Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. And so he, the steward, said, Now let it be also be according to your words. With whom it is found shall be my slave and the rest of you shall be innocent. See what they're doing here? They're protesting, they're claiming their innocence. And in verse 7, they recall the instance of their honesty, that they have brought back the money in verse 8. And so why would they steal silver or gold from the stewards of the Lord? It didn't make any sense to them. In verse 9, they are so confident <laughs> that they are innocent that they have even offered to submit to the severest punishment of letting the one who they find it with die and they all become slaves. Well, they are so sure they're innocent. And in these verses, we see the brothers of Joseph then trying to make a case for themselves as to why they would never do such a thing. But in fact, they are so confident that this silver cup is not going to be found with them. They're willing to make this deal, saying, if it's found with this, let the one who took it die. And the rest of us will be your slaves. But in verse 10, the steward knows that Joseph does not want to kill anyone, especially Benjamin. And so the steward changes it just a little bit by saying this deal, that the one who took it shall not die, 
but he shall become a slave, and you shall all be blameless. That should remind us and them of what Judah had said when they saw slave traders coming back in chapter 37, verse 26. It was not to kill Joseph, but to sell him. And next we see then their response and how the stealer was found. Verse 11 through 13. Verse 11, then they hurried, each man lowered his sack to the ground, each man opened his sack. He, the steward, searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. In 11 through 13, they have agreed, and they let the steward begin the search, and he begins with the oldest, and he goes to the youngest. Once again, it should have been another clue for them. Something is not right here. How would this steward know the knowledge again as to the age of who was the oldest right down to the youngest? It's another test. Joseph had been particularly kind, remember, to Benjamin. At the dinner, he gave him five times more than all the other brothers. But to their astonishment, this cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they did what? They tore their clothes. That was an ancient custom of portraying the pain of their heart that Benjamin is now going to become a slave in Egypt. But more important, how are they ever, ever going to explain this to their father Jacob? Remember when they told Jacob about Joseph, when we studied that? It was only Jacob who tore his clothes. But now we see all of them tearing their clothes. There's been a change that has occurred in the hearts of these brothers. Benjamin seems to have been quiet as all this is going on. He may have been ready to deny it, even to the point of making an oath of not taking it. But the evidence would have been overwhelming against him. And so we see they're finally getting smart enough at least to know better than to incite Joseph's justice. As much as so not to even suggest that perhaps it was the steward of the governor that had put the money in the sacks and had put the cup there. All they could do now was to throw themselves upon Joseph's mercy. Isn't that exactly what every sinner who comes to faith in Jesus Christ does? We confess our sins, knowing that it is only by God's grace and His mercy that He forgives us. And as we look deeper into this account, we are seeing a change of heart of the brothers. How do we know that? Well, it's because they're not about to leave Benjamin as they once had earlier done with Joseph. It's a sign of a changed heart, not only towards their brother Benjamin, but also for the hurt that it would have caused their father, as we'll see in a little bit here. See, these sons of Jacob, they had been really bad rascals, if you remember. They hated their father previously. They stole, they lied, they disobeyed. But they have changed. Instead of leaving Benjamin, they all went back to the city 
And in verses 14 to 16, then, we see their submission. Let's read it together. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? And so Judah said, what can we say, my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. And we're seeing here another picture of Joseph's dream back in chapter 37, so many years earlier, coming true. Remember that word that Jeff used for, for I believe it was, what was it, Jeff? Obeisance. And what does that mean? They fell to the ground. They bowed to the ground. Joseph now asks them, almost accusingly, what deed it is that they have done, as if he doesn't know. But then before they can answer, he wants them to know again that such a man as himself, with the authority he has, he could practice divination. He's continuing here the deception, the deception of being an Egyptian. And when we read this account, at first, if you're just glancing through it, it's almost like he's trying to acquire revenge on his brothers. But it's really quite the opposite. His purpose was not revenge. It's an attitude change, which we would call repentance. Through all of these schemes of Joseph, his brothers are coming to an awareness of their guilt again and how they are ready now to acknowledge it. But isn't it amazing when you look and look at this and you look through Scripture, the different ways that God uses to bring people to repentance? In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. You see, these brothers of Joseph now, they are utterly frustrated. You can hear it in their questions. You can hear it in their expression of guilt. The answer to their questions is, they have nothing to say. And therefore, they cannot show that they're innocent. Doesn't that remind you of Romans chapter 3, verse 23? All of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. They concluded then, God has uncovered their guilt. In verse 16, Judah pleads with Joseph. He admits that God has found out the iniquity of them all. Judah is acknowledging the foreknowledge of God here. They evidently thought God was rendering judgment upon them for how they had treated Joseph. Did God know the thoughts of their hearts? Absolutely. Does He know the thoughts of all of our hearts? Absolutely. In fact, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says what? The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. 
That's hard, isn't it? But for us, if you're here this morning and you are a true believer, that means what? That means that you have repented of your sins. You have asked God to forgive you. You have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. But what if you're here and you've never done that? You can still do it. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, it tells us this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Wow. That's also a good lesson for us as believers, though. Think about that. Do you and I still do wrong? Do we commit sin? Absolutely we do, don't we? We are still sinners. We carry around in our body this flesh. Our body is a flesh. And it's fighting a dead war against our, our soul every day. And when we do wrong... God will deal with us as His children. Just as you remember when you had children, or maybe you were a child here now, you remember mom and dad? They sometimes had to correct you, didn't they? They had to discipline you. And it wasn't pleasant, was it? But you know what? It wasn't pleasant for mom and dad to have to do that either. It hurts. And that by believing Him... It's necessary sometimes to correct us. I want you to think back a moment when you were a believer, when you first become a believer. For many of us, it's a familiar scene when we finally came to see our sin before a sovereign God, a God who opened our eyes to see, our ears to hear the gospel so that we could be saved through the finished work of Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. And through His death, burial, and resurrection, that He paid for our sins. And that by believing Him, Him, we are promised an eternal life with Him. Well, as we continue then on our journey, in verse, we see in verse 17, the sentence. The sentence proclaimed. Verse 17 says, but He, that's Joseph, says, far be from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Joseph's response then to Judah's request, actually by saying, no, that's not going to quite the way it's going to be. Benjamin will be my slave, but you're free to go up in peace. Go back to your father. Another reminder for them, isn't it, of what they had done. Can you imagine how they must have felt? Now, the guilt, the shame that they have carried for so long, and now it's going to be even greater in their losing Benjamin. It must have been like a slap in the face to them. Well, next we encounter then the supplication. In verses 18 to 32, let's read it together. Then Judah approached him and said, O oh, my Lord, May your servant please speak a word in your Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. 
My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. And now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. And thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Next we see then this speech. This speech, which is the longest speech in Genesis. And it begins with a plea. As Judah pleads with Joseph to relieve Benjamin. And it's amazing how he does this. He starts out by begging or pleading. But he does it with respect. He calls Joseph my Lord, just like a slave would. He's referring to himself as Joseph's slave or servant. He asks Joseph for patience, to listen, and to not be angry. He even ascribes authority to Joseph that he is like that of Pharaoh. And then we see Judah begins to state his case. In verses 19 and 20, we see it was him it was Joseph who would ask all these questions about their father and did they have a brother and how they answered every question, including that of having another brother that they all considered dead. It reminds us really of the intentional of the brothers way back in chapter 37, verse 18. They had originally plotted to do what to Joseph? To kill him. That was the original plot. It corresponds then with the false story that the brothers took back to Jacob. And it continued to let Jacob believe that Joseph had been killed by wild beasts. Now, we might think this was perhaps a slip of the tongue, but it's really revealing of the state of mind of these brothers as well as their guilt. They also think Joseph must be dead. Think about this. If Judah had just rethought about what had taken place 22 years earlier and had remembered that they had sold Joseph to who? Slave traders. He should have thought, 
that there was still a chance that he could be alive. For sure, there was absolutely no evidence that he was actually dead. But they made their father believe that he was dead. And they held to that lie for so long that they had forgot the truth and they believed in the lie themselves. You know what? That happens to a lot of people. They tell a lie and they tell it over and over and over again so many times that it becomes real to them, even though it's still a lie. They come to a point where they don't know the truth anymore from the lie. The whole section from verses 24 to 34 reminds me of a lawyer, like Rod, <laughs> in court, <laughs> explaining to the judge, which I would call Joseph, and Judah is representing Benjamin, just like a lawyer would be trying to convince Joseph, the judge, that Benjamin's not guilty. He's not worthy of, but he is worthy, rather, of compassion. And so Judah is trying to sell Joseph, the judge, on the idea that Benjamin is still a baby. He's not accustomed to the worldly ways. He never has had to endure hardship. He didn't have a mother having been brought up only by his father, and he was alone. He was the only one left of his mother, which is really true. And then Judah begins again, but this time he changes his, his approach. As now he shifts the blame as he reminds Joseph that he is at fault because he had been the one that had insisted on seeing their younger brother by not allowing them to buy grain again unless he was with them. Next, we see then Judah laying out the sequence of reasoning with Joseph the judge. Judah lays out the case of grief that this is going to cause Benjamin's father. If Benjamin is left behind, never to return, it would cause the death of her father. He speaks now as Jacob had pleaded with them against Benjamin going with them, saying that if anything had happened to Benjamin, that he would surely die of sorrow. And he's telling Joseph that Jacob's life is bound up in Benjamin. It's another reminder from them so long ago that Jacob's other son, Joseph, had also been his favorite. And he's asking Joseph now, show some mercy. After all, they had did what, they, what he asked. But then maybe he must sense this isn't going to work with Joseph. Maybe he sees something on his face or his countenance or something. It's not going to work. And so he changes his method once more. And he offers then the supposed exchange. In verses 33 to 34, let's read it. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up? To my father, if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. Judah is asking for an exchange, his life for Benjamin's. He remembers what he had promised his father, that he would be surety to the lad, to his father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. He's saying he cannot bear to see this happen again. 
And so he's asking that Joseph allow him to be the slave instead of Benjamin to satisfy the demands of of Joseph's law. What he's saying here, that he is willing to ransom Benjamin by taking his place. I don't know about you, but that just gives me chills to think about that because that's exactly, exactly what Jesus Christ has done for you and me. Mark 10, 45 says that Jesus came to what? Give his life as a ransom for many to seek and to save the lost. That's you and me. That's why he came. And back to our passage then, we see justice is served in verse 34. As Judah explains this last plea, it was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Joseph has seen a definite heart change in his brothers. It was moving. It was tender enough to melt his heart. Judah has admitted that he himself cannot bear to see his father's grief. Judah's compassion now is seen for his father, Jacob, and his readiness to substitute himself for Benjamin in slavery. It just finally overwhelms Joseph. These were not the same brothers that had sold him into slavery many years ago. They are different from anything that he's ever known before. And think about this. Joseph was a closer kin to Judah than than Judah was to Benjamin. Joseph was closer to Benjamin than Judah because Jacob and Rebekah had been Benjamin and Joseph's mom and dad. So naturally, he would have had a greater affection than Judah. And so Joseph, to bear this, to hear this from Judah about how it's grieving him about what's going to happen with his father couldn't have been more pleasing to Joseph. As we'll see next then, the verdict pronounced by Joseph, but you're going to have to wait until next week to get that. (laughs) There are several things for us to remember, though, from this account. Judah never mentioned, if you notice, the crime that had been charged to Benjamin. Why? Well, probably because if he had, it would have brought a question of Benjamin's honesty. Instead, Joseph appeals, or rather, Judah appeals to Joseph's compassion in his mercy. Uh, Judah will go on in chapter 49, as we'll study in a future time, to be blessed by his father, who is dying at that time, as he prophesizes concerning all of his sons, but especially Judah. Now remember, I want us to remember these brothers, and I'm only going to do the first four. You remember the first son, Reuben? What was his sin? He'd slept with his father's wife. Sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, what'd they do? They committed deception. They committed genocide of the Shechemites. The fourth son, Judah, what do you remember about him? Judah is the one who slept with Tamar, the wife of his dead son. But it was through deception But that still wasn't the sin. The sin was that he was with a prostitute. He thought she was a prostitute. And so Judah's transformation, all of them really, was only by the love of God and a remarkable, extraordinary change in their lives. 
as we saw them now showing love by offering his own substitution, Judah did, to save Benjamin. In the end, as Jacob is dying, he sees Judah as the one who will carry on the line. Listen to what he says about Judah in chapter 49, verse 10. He says, Jacob is prophesying now. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And unto and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. What is he saying here? Well, he's saying that from the line of Judah comes a lamb and a lion. Jesus Christ is the sacrificial lamb who will give his life to save the lost. And Jesus Christ as the lion when he will once again return and claim the deed to his creation to rule and reign with a rod of iron. We have seen this through the study of Joseph's life this morning, how the Lord has transformed this family, which was at times seeking the demise of each other. We have seen how important it was and the length that Joseph went to determine if his brothers had actually changed and we'll find out next week the answer to that, how Joseph responds. But for us this morning, what do we take away from this? When we're confronted with trials, and we all are, we're confronted with trials that are not near as severe, not near as complicated as what we're seeing in the life of Joseph. Ask yourself this question. Are you willing to forgive? Am I willing to forgive? You know, I don't know if you're going through a trial or not, or if you've been through one lately. But were you willing to forgive that person or whatever it was? If you're going through one now, ask yourself, how am I responding to this trial that I'm going through? You know, James 1-2 says we are to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Why? Because knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Also, in Matthew 18, 21, remember what Peter's he went to Christ and he asked, he says, Peter came and said to Christ, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And then we also see in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And we've seen that this morning a little bit in Joseph's life. But we are also, that means in order to do that, we must learn to love one another. We're going to love one another. Judah became the spokesperson for all of his brothers, didn't he? We've seen the life change that he and his brothers have a love now for their father, for each other, and as a family. A great picture for us this morning here. Because all of us, all of us here this morning, if you're true believers, we are family. We are sisters and brothers in Christ, and we will spend eternity together forever. 
Jesus said in John 15, 12, this is my command that you love one another just as I have loved you. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, therefore I, the prisoner, Paul is saying this, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, doing what? Showing tolerance for one another in love. Well, just as Judah interceded for the family, his brothers, and for his father, so Christ also intercedes for us. You know, Satan is always there because we are still sinners. Satan is always there and he's accusing us before God. He's accusing us, but we have someone there for us. And he, we must remember, Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is our advocate. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We also see it in Romans 8, 34b, where it says, Jesus Christ is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who does what? Who also intercedes for us. For us. And if this morning that is a picture of you, then Romans 8, 21, oh, I missed this one, Colossians 2, 13 and 14, tells us this is before what happened to us when we become believers. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt and consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And the last one, if this is a picture of you, if you indeed are willing to forgive and you're showing love for one another and you remember Christ is always your advocate pleading your case that you are His, that your sins have been forgiven, then Romans 8 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the life of Joseph and how it really represents us in our attitude sometimes. Lord, I just pray this morning as we listen to this, Lord, that we are willing to forgive those who hold a grudge against us or do something to harm us. Help us, Lord, to forgive them and love and to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ to help each other out, to come alongside, to be, to be a brother to them in love. I pray then also, Lord, we never, ever forget that you are standing before the Father, pleading our case when Satan accuses us. You plead our case saying, no, I bled and died for their sins. I forgive them. Father, help us to always remember that, to always carry that in our hearts that you are the one who saved us. You are our God. And Lord, may we represent you to bring honor and praise and glory to your name. For it's in your name we pray.